Well, hey, uh, good morning, River City Church. My name is Brad. I'm a pastor here at River City. Um, this week, we close out um, what has been a uh, five-week, should have been six-week, but I got like crazy six last, sick last week, so we combined them together, but a five-week journey through uh, this portion of the book of 1 Corinthians that we've been working through, uh, surrounding and talking about uh, spiritual gifts and, and order in the local church. So this week, we will close that out. Um, this week, what we're going to do is we're going to try and cover um, all of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible with you, um, I'd encourage you to flip there, um, open it there. Uh, if you've got a phone, feel free to tap there. Uh, we will have some of the verses on the screen, but we're going to deal with a large section of text today, and we're also going to uh, try and, and just understand some general concepts from that text. So uh, a particularly helpful week for you to have a Bible open in front of you. Um, and I need to say as we head into this and before we kind of read this passage that this is one of those passages in the Bible that can uh, arise some uh, controversy or has a lot of interpretive disagreement um, or even is something that I think uh, can just be difficult and confusing as we read this and try and understand some of the principles that are in it. And so um, anytime we come to a passage like this, we just try and remind ourselves of uh, what we hope our mindset as we head into this is. Uh, uh, first, so our, our goal is that we, we head into a text like this, we approach a portion of the Bible like 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14 with humility, trying to understand it within the whole context of the Bible. Um, and, and that humility is extremely important, that we come to this, um, and I'm not sure if you are aware of this, maybe I fooled you, like I'm not an expert at every single part of the Bible. Uh, I don't sit down and spend 15 minutes reading a passage and go, okay, uh, I understand this completely, right? There, there are parts of the Bible uh, that, that are difficult to understand, that we have a cultural division from just from the length of time that has passed. There can be a division just because of the language that the Bible was originally written with Greek in the New Testament. Uh, there can be a division just because of past experience, and so it sometimes takes work to understand it, and sometimes um, on passages that are, uh, I'd say, uh, marginal to the essentials or the orthodoxy of what we believe, there can be a variety of good interpretations of those passages. And so there might be some things we land on today, and you're like, I completely disagree. And I'm going to say, awesome, let's go have a cookie together and probably not even talk about it, right? Or we can talk about it, right? Like, there, there are some things where we need to approach it with humility saying, hey, this is not the essence of our faith. The essence of our faith is in orthodoxy, is in this triune God who we know as God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, his Son. It's in the truth of the gospel, in God's provision for us to step back into his family, to have our sins paid for in Jesus, to have resurrection bring new life to us. It is in uh, the, the promise of the second coming of that Christ and God's kingdom coming to its fullness and our ultimate uh, eternity spent with him. These are the things of orthodoxy, just a few of them that, that we will die on. And then there are some things that while important to study and understand, we need to be cautious that we don't become overly prideful in our understanding. So we want to be humble and we want to try and understand what these passages say in the context of the Bible as a whole. Uh, two, when we head into these passages, we want this reminder that our goal um, as a local church, as River City Church, is to pursue unity. 
And so that means that where uh, the um, overall stance and, and, um, and um, methods or philosophies of the local church may differ slightly from what you believe, that we can be here and worship together anywhere. Where you or me or anyone else might see a passage with marginal differences, uh, we can worship together. Um, this is a passage that I'd say there are a variety of opinions that even people um, who would be uh, elders or preachers in this local church could differ on, and they should be able to be united, love each other, and do ministry together for the most part. There are some marginal things where we'd say, hey, we want to stay away from the edges, um, but in, in kind of the center of these interpretations, uh, we're together and we want to be united. Uh, third, uh, we just want to be honest that there are many different interpretations of these, some of these things, and we can't exhaustively cover all of them. I will uh, try, as we work through some of this, to tell you like where, where I lean and kind of how we operate as a church. Uh, by, that, no, by no means is meant to be exhaustive or dismissive um, of other viewpoints. We just only have so much time to work through these things. We can only spend so much time. Or you would just leave, honestly, if we got too in the weeds with this. You'd be like, you know what, the lions start at one. Like, we're three hours into this, and like, I don't care. Like, you'd just go. I don't know why we're still watching the lions either. That's another thing for another day. Uh, fourthly, uh, what our goal is as we work through a passage like this is to seek clear application for our context and have fuel for our worship of God. Uh, there should be no way to study the Bible that does not fuel the way that you worship this creator God and is not uh, uh, clearly applied to your life. And so we don't want to just understand this as a text and say that we have an academic understanding of what's possible or exactly what Paul was trying to communicate to the Corinthians or us. What we want instead is to have a clear application of the text and for this text to open up our eyes for how God has richly provided for us for us to continue to worship him more in the truth of who he is. Uh, lastly, as we head into this, we just want to pray and ask for God's help. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read now the entirety of chapter 14 so we can get a little bit of a picture of it, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to start to work through this, okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Here we go. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in a tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church might be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I, believe, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Not even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, then how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of a language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? 
I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will listen to me, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come all together and each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things done be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, then let the first be silent, for you can, for you can all prophesy one by another, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but should in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is sinful for a woman to, shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Okay, let's pray. God, uh... There is a lot in this passage for us to work through today. Um, God, and I first just ask that you would help us to remember that this is your word. And so because this is your word, Lord, it, it is good for us. It provides a pathway for us to understand the way that you love us and the way that you have provided for us to find joy in you. God, for us as a church here, as River City Church, I pray that we would um, understand this in, in a way that makes sense for our local context. God, that we wouldn't get so um, in the weeds of some of these things that we would miss out on the principles which are timeless and very, very helpful for us here. Um, God, help us to understand these things and help us to deal with them uh, within this time that we have now to do so. God, make us humble, unite us under your word, and give us uh, marching orders forward as we look through this passage today. And then we pray. Amen. 
All right, so this passage starts out, and it's dealing with two main spiritual giftings that Paul is trying to compare and contrast in the context of Corinth. Um, as we said when we started out um, this kind of three, four chapter section of Corinthians on spiritual gifts, that the two main issues at hand are Paul's trying to speak into the way that they perceive spiritual gifting, and in particular speak into in that their understanding of this gift of tongues. And then two, he's trying to speak in and bring order to their worship services that were completely in chaos. And so really, as we head into this uh, and we think about these things, we need to have this understanding that the worship services in the early church, the worship service in Corinth, were, were not like what we gather uh, for here today. There were elements of it that I think were similar. It seems that they sang together. It seems that there was formal teaching of the word. But there was also a lot more uh, communal uh, speaking, a lot more kind of call and response and answers. It seems that a lot more people were taking place to the extent in which in Corinth, things had just kind of gotten out of hand. But there was not a lot of order in the local church. The people were speaking over each other. The people were exercising their gifts kind of just willy-nilly um, as they felt called in the moment. And so Paul wants to speak into these things. He wants to speak in particular trying to compare this gift of tongues that the Corinthians, as we've seen, were obsessed with, uh, with a different gift, with a gift of prophecy, and try and encourage the Corinthians to step back from their view of tongues that viewed it as the most important gift, the thing that they all wanted to have, so much so that they were abusing and misusing this gift within their worship services. So, so how do we define this gift of tongues? What is this thing? Uh, maybe you haven't been to church in a long time, uh, maybe you uh, aren't super familiar with the Bible and you came here today and you're like, what did I get into? Like, what was that craziness that was just read here? Like, uh, we are not going to pass snakes. I want to just clear some of these things up. Let, let's try and identify what was this gift of tongues? What was going on in the early church? Uh, this this um, definition was helpful for me. Uh, tongues was a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That, that is this part of God, this, this, this member of the Trinity, uh, whereby the believer speaks forth in a language that he has never learned and which he does not understand. <coughs> Let me read that again. Tongues is a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit, whereby the believer speaks forth in a language that he has never learned and, by which he, and in which he does not understand. <clears throat> so a few questions come up as we try and delve through what this gift of tongues was or is. The first question is, is, is it a real language or not? Now, the most distinct narrative we have on, on something that looks like the gift of tongues is found in Acts chapter 2. Um, in Acts chapter 2, um, it looks a little different because uh, it kind of comes on a large group of people, and these people are, are sharing the gospel, and these people don't even realize as they're sharing the gospel that they're speaking in a different language than their own. And so there's kind of mass confusion as people are trying to figure out, why don't I understand the people who are speaking to me? Um, some people are hearing from the outside and hearing uh, their own language spoken as the gospel is being shared shared and as people are having the Holy Spirit rain down on them for the first time. This is this day known as the day of Pentecost and it's kind of this crazy mass public outside thing. It seems in that instance that those were real languages, that they were identified as real languages in that moment, that other people who did understand those languages were able to understand them. Throughout the Bible, the word used to define tongues is often a word used that is just synonymous with the word 
languages. Um, It seems like the most clear evidence from Scripture is that it is likely that the gift of tongues did play out in real languages, but there is a lot of interpretation with this. In particular, a lot of it focuses um, on the preceding chapter in, in verse 13 where Paul uses this phrase, even if I speak in the tongues of angels. Now, entire theologies and systems have been built on that short phrase there to believe that there is um, some other sort of, of tongue speaking that is not an intelligible language. This is uh, to try and answer um, a lot of difficulties with modern tongue speaking that, that linguists have listened to recordings, have sat in the presence of modern day tongues um, in the 20th and 19th and 21st century, as I just learned this one is a couple weeks ago. Uh, they, they've listened to these recordings and try to understand, um, do we see patterns of real language here? Does anyone speak this language? And and the conclusive evidence has been no. That in those recordings um, that have been able to be examined, we don't mean to say that's necessarily exhaustive or that it's never happened that someone's spoken in a tongue that was a a real language and someone else understood. I'll be honest with you, I think that's probably happened. Um, when I hear stories from people on the mission field of where um, someone spoke in a language and someone in that room who spoke that language understood and was able to interpret, those sound like legitimate things, but those have not been able to be verified and, and are anecdotal, and so we don't want to build our understanding of it necessarily off those things. Um, so do we understand this as real language or not? I, I think my honest Answer is, I'm not sure it matters, but I would lean towards them being real languages. Um, And the reason I would lean towards that is is that does seem to be what's most obviously happening in Scripture, is that when people are speaking in tongues, it's a real language. In addition to the fact that it seems to me, and I'm going to try not to be too hurtful, and if I say this too strong, I'm just gonna, you're going to have to give me lots of grace today because I like to make jokes. Some of them might screw up, okay? This isn't a joke, but I'm trying to say this gently. It seems to me that the instances of the gifts of tongues in which it's clear, to, at least to hearers and interpreters, that a real language is not being spoken, meaning an earthly language, those tend to be expressions of the gift of tongues that also don't meet any of the other requirements that we'll talk about for the gift of tongues. It would seem to me that that often modern expressions of tongues, which are clearly not real language, that even those speaking them would say, no, I think this is an angelic language, don't seem to meet the test of scripture for what is required of this gift to be something that is used in the local body. So are they real languages or not? I would lean towards, yeah, I think that if this is a real uh, manifestation of the spirit, if this is the real gifting of tongues, of languages, synonymous were that it would be a real language. Uh, the second question is, is, is the, are these instances of speaking in tongues, is speaking in tongues, um, is it controlled by the individual, or is it ecstatic, charismatic, spontaneous speech? Is the speaking in tongues that's happening, is it, is it an uncontrollable thing where they just speak out in this language, or is it... controllable. Now again, in in Acts 2, it's a little bit confusing because it does not appear uh, that these people necessarily know that they're speaking in other languages. But what does seem to be clear is that they come to realize that and that they are in control of the speech that is coming out of their mouth. They can choose to speak or not speak. This is not some sort of uh, um, possession-like thing where, where someone is speaking and they clearly know that they're making this choice to speak or not speak. And we can see this clearly 
from this chapter where Paul gives clear instructions as to when and how they are to use this gift of tongues. That Paul seems to imply here that they have the choice to either speak in tongues or not speak in tongues. He tells them, if there's no one there to interpret your tongues, don't do it, which we'll get to um, in a few moments. He tells them, um, if you're there and multiple people want to speak in tongues, just let a few people do it, and the rest of you control it and hold back. So it seems that Paul is indicating that this speech, pretty clearly in Scripture, is able to be controlled. And so uh, one of the places where I would say I would reject, um, in a more harsh sense, is I would reject any notions of tongues as some sort of ecstatic utterance that overwhelms someone and they just speak out. And if you've ever flipped through the channels like on your TV that you don't usually watch, that's the kind of tongues you usually see. It's some sort of tongues that's uncontrollable, that just comes over someone, um, that they act as if they were in control of something other than themselves. This does not seem to be how the Holy Spirit operates or how we see tongues operating in the New Testament. Some people would disagree with this and be super hurt. And if that's you, super sorry. And I'd love to talk more about it. I'm just on a different page with that one. Uh, two, um, was the intention of tongues to be, or three, I can't count, uh, was the intention of tongues to be a, a private thing or a, a public thing? Um, was tongues intended to primarily exist as an encouraging private prayer language between someone and God speaking in tongues in this way, or was it intended to have a, a, a public purpose? Um, every instance of tongues that we have in the New Testament uh, seems to be a public instance, but Paul does seem into this, in this passage to point to some sort of private existence of the gift. It seems like in this passage that there's not a lot of clarity on this. It seems like the intended purpose of tongues, as we'll see in a minute, was for a public purpose. Paul said that this sign was given uh, for unbelievers to point to something about the, the coming of the gospel, the coming of the, the church age, if you will, this transition from God's relationship being solely with his people Israel to the expansion of that through Jesus to knit in all people under the grace of found in Jesus. It seems like the expression of this, the reason that God gave this to the church was a public reason, but it also seems that there was an appropriate way to exercise this privately as he tells them to go do this in and of themselves, as he indicates that he speaks in tongues in, in some way privately, some commentators believe. It seems that there was an appropriate way to handle this privately. So where I would land on that is to say I think that the public administration of this was the way that the gift was intended to be used for the establishment of the church, but it seems there was some sort of appropriate thing. Uh, or appropriate private usage. Uh, lastly, as we go through this definitional section, I appreciate you bearing with me here. Um, what was the purpose of tongues? Well, well Paul seems to clearly state here that the purpose of tongues was to act as a sign for unbelievers. He says this in verse 22. He says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. What does this mean, that, that tongues is a sign for unbelievers? Um, he quotes here uh, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 9. He says that, that in Isaiah, this passage is referring, uh, most commentators think, to the coming of Jesus and the way that the family of God, these people within this covenant relationship of God, will expand. And he refers there to the people speaking different languages 
of a sign, as a sign of this changing relationship between God and the people in the world. That God had always planned to expand this group of covenant people, his family, beyond just the Jewish people, but to bless the world through the Jewish race. Um, and so it seems to be here that the, maybe there's some indication to tongues being a sign of this changing of the age in which Gentile Christians would be adopted into this family of God, or, or unbelievers who were Gentiles would begin to be saved and step into this covenant family. It seems that tongues was perhaps used to confirm the arrival um, of this age, as well as it was used clearly in Acts 2 to confirm the coming of the age of the Holy Spirit, empowering and gifting believers. What is tongues? That's what I think it is. I think it is this supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit whereby believers speak forth in this language that they've never learned and which they don't understand. So Paul, in this passage, tries then to compare the gift of tongues to this gift of prophecy. As we've read through this, we've seen over and over again, he relates this to prophecy, saying, hey, while you may want to speak in tongues, because that's what the Corinthians were really excited about, he says, I would encourage you instead, in this love that he's established in chapter 13, he says, if you're being controlled by love as the way that you think about gifts, to think about prophecy as being the gift that he's suggesting that the Corinthians needed the most. Prophecy, as opposed to tongues, was a language spoken that was intelligible, um, that was some sort of communication from God. <coughs> this, too, gets a little bit tricky because prophecy in the New Testament is extremely hard to define. And it seems that this word pointing to prophecy is used in a very broad sense. Here is where commentators almost universally agree, though, and this is very important, that the way that the word prophecy or prophet was used in the Old Testament is extremely different from the way that the word prophecy is used in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, prophets were tested, direct mouthpieces of God. Uh, the words of a prophet, after he had been tested and been found to be a faithful prophet, were to be taken with the very authority of God. Uh, the the uh, penalty for a screw-up or for a prophet who proclaimed to be a prophet, but the words that they spoke in terms of foretelling the future, or even the words that they spoke were found tested to not be of God, was stoning. Okay? Prophecy in the Old Testament was very different, was very specific, and, and involved a specific office of an individual known as a prophet who was the mouthpiece and carried with the weight of their words the authority of God. Um, it seems that what was synonymous with the office of prophet in the, Old, in the Old Testament was actually the office of apostle that Paul took and many of the authors of the New Testament held in the New Testament. That these were the people that had this kind of direct, specific uh, revelation from God where the words that they spoke, which we now have recorded in Scripture, were the very words of God. And so prophecy in the New Testament has a little bit of a, a looser understanding. It, it was, um, and this is a paraphrase of uh, John uh, Grudem's, John, of Wayne Grudem, John Gruden, wow, football. <laughs> Wayne Grudem, <laughs> definition of, that's hilarious to me. And I like, two of you get it, but like, it's really funny to me, okay, uh, that I said that. It's like, you have to both be a theology nerd and a football nerd, and like, those don't come together that often. Like, there's a couple of us, but most of the theology nerds were just getting beat up by the uh, football nerds, so uh, it's a unique intersection. 
Uh, so he uh, defines this uh, loosely, this is a paraphrase, is, is a direct revelation from God, the direct speech of God, but carrying with it a different weight than Old Testament prophecy. Uh, we see this play out in particular in this passage in 1 Corinthians. As the Corinthians are instructed when these prophets speak in the law of the church, what are they told to do? They're told to weigh what they say. Now, this was something that was never referred to outside of the testing of an Old Testament prophet, that they were not instructed to weigh the words of the prophet. The words of those Old Testament prophets were the word of God. They weren't to be weighed or considered or found to be true. They were to be obeyed to the letter of the law. Whereas here in this passage, we see that they were to gather. It seems that the authority holders in the local church were supposed to listen to these prophecies and verify whether or not they matched up with the whole of what we understood from Scripture about God. So prophecy in the New Testament was a revelation from God, but not so direct to be called or the word of God as those of New Testament our Old Testament prophets. Uh, in the New Testament, they were called to test these things, and there were clear limits to the uh, ministry of people who had this gift. Uh, one question that arises is, is prophecy in the New Testament synonymous with preaching? Um, it would seem uh, just linguistically, no, that there are two very different words. It seems like this held um, very different form and office in the uh, New Testament. Um, elders, uh, teachers, pastors, are synonymous, or, sorry, elder pastor, uh, the synonymous word. They were called to be teachers. They were never called to be prophets, specifically within the um, understanding and requirements for those local church leaders, those empowered men, was this call to be teachers. However, prophecy seems to be a unique sort of gifting. Okay, so we've worked through all this. I think we have at least a working definition of tongues and prophecy. And so the question comes as we come to this passage, uh, the question on all our minds is, okay, what about these gifts for today? Like, how do we read this passage and the instructions based on these gifts? How do we read this in light of our current day? Not even just the church as a whole, but how do we read this in light of River City Church? And the question really comes, uh, what are these gifts? Are these gifts still in ready distribution from the Holy Spirit? And should we as a church pursue these gifts? Now, I think to answer this, we need to really return to that original definition of what spiritual gifts are from our very first message working through this passage. Uh, we, we quoted Dr. Saucy, who says that, that what spiritual gifts are are an ability given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might serve God and in and through the church and thus accomplish his purposes in the world. And so we define these spiritual gifts, these grace gifts, as gifts doled out by, selected by God for the specific circumstance that a local church is in to empower them to build each other up and to accomplish the mission that is given them. And so what's really important about that definition and this understanding of giftings is that we understand that the distribution of gifts in the local church is decided by God for the season of that church. Now, I think what's difficult is many people want to run to extreme ends on this debate. And so there are, on one hand, uh, the, the sensationist over here, and the cessationist want to say, no, from Scripture, it's absolutely clear that these giftings have absolutely stopped. And, and, and we, honestly, the, if you're in this camp, and like you're probably like, I'm scared of them, and I want nothing to do with them, right? Because they seem weird and freaky, and the people that tend to claim them are not people that I want to be around, Right? This is where the cessation stand versus people on the more charismatic and even to the Pentecostal end want to claim that these gifts are essential in ready distribution. And some would even go so far to make the claim that every single believer should have these sign and miraculous gifts involved in their life in some way. 
And so where I think we want to land, as usual, is somewhere in the middle. But I think for us at River City Church in the way that we will operate, we will operate leaning towards more of the cessationist side of the practical reality of it while being open theologically to the way that God would want to move and work in terms of the charismatic definitions of the gifts. That I don't think it's easy to make a faithful case from the end of chapter 13 that the way that Paul refers to the perfect coming has absolutely come. This seems to be a clear um, picture of Jesus returning. And Paul says that, yes, when Jesus returns, some of these gifts will cease. But what Paul tends to already be doing here in the book of 1 Corinthians is making an argument for the fact that the distribution and need for these spiritual gifts changes as the church grows and shifts and, and matures that it seems that he's already making this argument to the Corinthians and saying to them, the gift of tongues is not what is most needed in your local body at this time. Why does Paul seem to point to the Corinthians to, to seek out prophecy? Is what do the Corinthians need? The Corinthians seem to need clear teaching directly from God. The Corinthians did not have the same privilege that you and I do of the entire Bible in its written form. The Corinthians were not a people with anywhere near the uh, literacy rates that we uh, take delight in in our culture. These people did not own Bibles that they carried to church and then carried home to, with them. What was essential for them when they came together was to hear the word of God taught from their pastors and elders and then to receive these miraculous uh, signs of prophecy and, and sometimes tongues with interpretation as it plays out here. So I think what we see in Corinthians is what I think is a strong argument for the fact that the way that God distributes gifts changes based on the season and needs of the church. And so it does not appear to me um, as your pastor that our church is in need of or has a ready distribution of these gifts for public ministry in the local church. And you can handle that in two ways. You can go, oh, we must not be spiritual enough, right? God must not love us enough to give us these really special, shiny gifts. But that seems to fly right in the face of what this entire section is trying to indicate. That it seems this entire section of the book of 1 Corinthians is instead trying to indicate that the way that God has equipped and made the local church, the way that he's distributed the gifts, is beautiful and something to delight in. And so why does it seem to me that we don't have these gifts in distribution here locally at River City? I would say that it seems that God has said that we, we don't need them in this season. That we have a clear and defined revelation from God. That we live in an era where in an unprecedented way you have the ability to read and understand the word of God for yourself. What an amazing thing. Like when you read through all these, all these uh, letters to New Testament churches, did you ever stop to think about the fact that many of them couldn't read? That they couldn't pick up their Bible and study the word of the God? That they were more dependent on their local leaders than you even have to be? That's amazing and beautiful. You can read the word of God. You can own. I own like 17 Bibles, right? I don't even know where half of them are. I'm scoping out other ones. There was a real nice one in the back, and I was like, man, I hope somebody left this here and they never come back because this is way nicer than my Bible. I'm super excited. And I don't know whose it was. It's not there anymore. So you got a nice Bible, and I'm jealous, right? Like we live in an unprecedented area where we have uh, God's communication to us in the word in a different way. And so I think that our needs are different. And so I'm not going to pass judgment on what happens out on the mission field or in a different place where that's different. I'm going to just be confident in the fact that I, I trust God, I trust the way that wor he works, and, and I believe that the way he's arranged and, and talked about these in Scripture gives us clear guidelines if we were in a season in which God chose to work through the church in this way. 
So the question becomes, and, and here's how we'll try and work through the rest of this um, um, quickly, is what's Paul's point in chapter 14? Uh, what, what is the argument that he's trying to make? Uh, first, I think he's trying to make an argument about value. Take a look here at verse 14, and we'll finally have one on the screen. Brandon, you still awake back there? There's been like nothing to click. I'm sorry, okay? It says, uh, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets that the church may be built up. Now, here we're going to highlight the key phrase in all of this here in red, okay? Take a look at it. What was the intention? Why was Paul speaking into these gifting issues? What did Paul want? He wanted the local church to be built up. What Paul wanted more than anything was for the Corinthian church to be strong because in many ways this was a church that was not strong at all, right? Think back to the weeks that we've been in. Think back to the rampant sexual immorality. Think back to the uh, complete misunderstandings of marriage. Think back to the guy who, who is likely married to sleeping with his mother-in-law. This church has a, a ton of issues going on. And what Paul wants is for the way that they ask God for gifts, for the way that they use the gifts in the local church to be that the local church might be strengthened. What our goal is, is that we would ask God for help in the form of gifts that we might build up the body, not that we could get the gifts that we want. This isn't like Christmas morning passage, all right, right? It's not that kind of gifts. These aren't gifts like gifts that are exclusively intended to be a blessing to you. Now, I think Scripture makes the argument they will be, that they will edify you, that they will be enjoyable to you, but the gifts that we're asking for are like asking for tools in which to take part in the building up of this local Body. We must arrange the implementation of our gifts in the body so that they are good for the whole of the body. And so when Paul talks about tongues and prophecy, he's really clear. Look at verse 26. He says this. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, that's a song, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He says, Let everything you be be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there only be two or three at most, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. Paul speaks into this gathering of the local church, which we said looks really different than ours, and he said, hey, I want to give you some bounds so that the way that you use your gifts is profitable. And so he says to the Corinthians, using tongues in this way, where you all just speak at once, where everybody speaks a different language, where everybody speaks over each other, he says using tongues in this way apparently was not building up the body. In fact, we can see two chapters back that what it was doing is causing some people to question whether or not they even belonged in the church. Because they thought, I don't, I don't have the gifts that these other people have. I don't have these public gifts. I'm not presentable in this way. Maybe I don't belong here. And so what Paul says is to use their gifts in an orderly way, to use their gifts only in a way that builds up the entire church as a whole. Not using their gifts in a way that makes them feel special or makes other people question whether or not they have a role in this. He is focused on the edification of the local church. What for? To the end that they would complete their mission. 
Paul's thoughts in this are, are, are almost exclusively when it comes to the purpose of tongues, the purpose of prophecy, the reason that order was so important in the local church are focused on edification, and then that, that edification of each, of each other, when viewed by unbelievers, people who don't yet know Jesus, would point them towards Jesus. And she says, hey, if you walk into a church, and you walk in here today, and everybody is just speaking to the corner of the room in a different language, hightail it out, right? Like, they're nuts. He says, if an unbeliever walks into your assembly and everybody's speaking a different language, he uses this illustration. He's like, it's like if you were in a war and instead of the bugle player making these calls so that everybody knew which way to march and everybody was focused on the same thing, was just playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. And everybody's like, I don't know where to go. And people start shooting each other. He says, this is crazy. Because the way that you're using your gifts, it's, it's one, not building up the church, it's, it's making things crazy, and two, it's defeating the mission of the local church because anyone who walks in, this isn't going to be a sign to them to believe. They're not going to hear these words and understand them in any way. He says if you were prophesying, if you were speaking truth from God and about God, people would walk in and they'd hear the gospel and they'd be saved. He says, if you were doing this rightly, if you were exercising your gifts in the way that God intended them, that it would have an evangelistic purpose. And so Paul's focus is that the way that they administrate, administer their gifts, that the way that they run their church service on their gathering days, that it would build up the church, that it would be radically focused on loving each other and pointing each other to Jesus, and that when other people saw that, they'd go, man, I want to be a part of this family. How do, I, how, do I, how do I get in, right? And instead of the answer being like, oh, well, you got to speak in tongues. You're like, okay, out, I guess. Like, never mind. Instead of the answer being, oh, you need to prophesy. Instead of the answer being, oh, well, you can come in. I mean, we need another keyboard player, so if not, we're kind of full up, right? No room in the end. Instead, the answer is, well, you come in because you, you can believe in Jesus. That you can place your faith in him, that it would have an evangelistic bent towards it. All right, so let's deal with uh, the difficult stuff in 29. Uh, what about that women thing, okay? So I know you're all like, mm, we're going to talk about that today? Because this is one of the harshest ones. Uh, and I think actually this is one of the easier ones to deal with. It just comes off the most harsh. But uh, here's what I think is going on. So I'll read it again uh, just so we can be offended together. It's fun, isn't it? We love it, okay? Take a video, put it on Facebook. Please don't, Okay. But um, here we go. Now he says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that you may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be kept silent in the churches. For the name are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, what's going on here? Uh, first of all, um, again, the humility thing, a lot of interpretations of this, okay? A lot of people trying to work through it um, from people that just want to write it off and say, well, hey, I think what was going on is that women in this era 
who are educated, and so them speaking in in this way um, was just, it was a distraction. So he's saying, hey, uh, ask at home so you're not a distraction in the service. And there's some merit to some of that, but I don't think it deals with the text quite properly in the context of the text. Uh, there are people that just want to say, yeah, this was a specific uh, cultural thing. It has nothing to do with us today. I, I think it, it's really somewhere in the middle of those two things. Uh, what's the context of this passage? What is Paul speaking about in this passage? Well, he's speaking about when prophecy happens in the local church, when these people with the gift of prophecy speak, and then there's this command that they would come together and they would weigh what is said. Now, that's really important because what... Where does Paul give other instructions based on weighing or judging? Well, that's in, in this classic passage from 1 Timothy where he instructs the church and, and uses this word indicating that there was uh, this uh, from or rooted in creation command that in the local church this line of authority or judgment or some would call it judicial authority um, would, would lay with equipped called men in the local church and that this authority isn't supposed to extend outside of that created order. Um, and, and we are a church that believes in the whole Bible, and, and while it is difficult for us in particular in our cultural context to work through these things, and while it can arise lots of, lots of feelings and, and, and difficult things, for, I, I think every single one of us, but, but if you're a woman, of course all the more, because you're the one that feels restricted in this. And so what I think this passage is indicating is that this was an office. Uh, what, what office are we talking about? The, the judging or weighing of prophecy. The, the speaking into whether or not uh, a prophecy was from God or not. I think what Paul is indicating here is that was to reside with the elders and male leaders of the local church. And I think that's the only reason that he speaks into this on women is he's speaking into how this uh, prophecy and weighing of prophecy was supposed to play out. Now, other passages seem to speak into uh, what teaching looks like and what authority looks like in the local church. And we've dealt with some of those and we'll deal with some of those on other days. But let's be absolutely clear. This is not uh, uh, Julia gave the welcome today. We have women who read scripture here frequently. Uh, it appears very clear from earlier in Corinthians that Paul uh, was permissive of and encouraging of women prophesying, praying, and speaking in tongues in the local church right alongside men. Okay, So when he talks about silence here, we don't mean silence like never speaking. I think the only silence he's speaking into was in the situation of weighing prophecy which uh, resided with the local male elders of that church. It's clear that he's not saying that as a premonition as the whole because we see across Paul's writing that women spoke and, and prayed and read scripture, prophesied, spoke in tongues. Uh, how will we deal with this here? Well, like I said, we're not... Uh, in a camp where we think that God is often speaking through the means of this New Testament gift of prophecy, so we're also not in the camp where we very often have to weigh it. Um, if, if that happened, I guess we would try uh, to do it the way the passage indicates that we would try to have our local pastors be the one who did that, and we deal with that in that way. But I don't think there's a lot of context where this makes sense for the way that we see the gifts being distributed in the local church, and we want to be absolutely clear this is not trying to be a premonition against women speaking overall, but in this uh, certain circumstance. Um, there are almost no commentators, at least not ones you'd want to have lunch with, that, that think this is supposed to be women or supposed to be absolutely silent. It just conflicts with scripture as a whole. He must be speaking into something specific, and that's my best um, study, like literally read hundreds of pages on this this week because bothered me so much. I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. Why does this seem uh, in contrast to other things we read? So that's what I think is going on with the women thing, okay? 
36. Here's his final instructions. And I, and I think this is to be a summary of really this entire two or three chapters as a whole. He says this. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, but do not forbid speaking in tongues. For but all things should be done decently and in order. Um, what are Paul's final instructions on these things of the Corinthians? Uh, he says this, he says, God gave the church what it needs. God is the one who distributed these offices. He says, it's not you to decide what God gives and what he doesn't give. It's not for you to decide what the purposes of those things are. And he even backs this up to saying, hey, who did the word of God come from? Like, if you're speaking in tongues and it's being interpreted, if you're prophesying, if you're even an apostle or an Old Testament prophet, he says, where does this content come from? Who gets to administer it? He says, it's God himself. And so we have to avoid pride in this and avoid thinking that we know best and instead heed the instructions here that God has given the church exactly what it needs. So I think uh, the way that we close this out is to rejoice in, I think, five uh, clear truths about what God has done here. Uh, that we rejoice as believers knowing that God has provided exactly what we need in this season for River City Church. And I just want to, I just reflected on this in, the, in these five ways, honestly. Like, um, God has gifted River City Church with gifts of care. Like, there are people in this church um, who love each other really well. Um, if you're not involved yet in a city group, man, I just want to encourage you. City groups are where we see the gifts of care most clearly administered in our local congregation. I know that that is hard with life. It is hard with life for my family. Like, I have little kids that need to get to bed. I am often tired, as many of you are. And it is hard to commit to a local or a small expression of this local body. But that is where I have most often seen the gift of care played out. I remember, um, so my family was all sick this week, and like many of you were super kind and gracious with us, but it reminded me last year of, um, he's not here today, so we can make much of him. So my, my good buddy Joey Zagorski, who doesn't come to church every week, so we can judge him for that later, but um, whole family was sick, like, um, and he just offered like, hey, can, can we bring you a meal? And that was super cool that he brought us that meal, um, and I wasn't sick, and he brought me like a really, really rare beer, right? And I was like, Joey, thank you, right? And it was, just, it was just this thing that, like, it had value, and it was just the way. This is a terrible illustration, maybe, because it's like, well, I guess we're supposed to hand out beer. But, like, it was just a way that, like, man, he, he cared for me, and, and he showed me love in a way that was extreme. And, and I, could, I could go through just ways that I've seen people sacrifice for each other, um, help each other out financially. Like, gifts of care have been expressed in this body, and I, I'm thankful for that. Um, two, like God is building a, a core of just servants here at River City Church, people who understand that what it means to lead and to follow Jesus is to serve with the entirety of themselves, to give their time uh, to prepare, to work on this space, to clean, to make, like whatever. Like there are a, a thousand ways, and God is building people who, who are loving this body and exercising those gifts of service. 
Um, God has begun to grow the spirit of generosity, both in the way that we care for each other, as well as the way that he provides through our, our, our monetary gener- generosity to this local church. Um, I continue to just be so thankful to see how God continues to move, um, both in, in those of you who are able to give much, as well as those of you um, who are just, who are given what you can, and that's amazing. Like, I know what a journey it's been for me in my life for God to work through um, giving being really hard for me in seasons. So I just, I just say I'm just so thankful for the way that God's providing uh, generous people who have that gift of giving to River City Church. Uh, God's given us just a multitude of talents um, from people that, that, that know how to work on things around the building to music to, to taking care of kids well to tech. Like God has just been really good to provide us people who, with the gifts and just physical day in and day out talents that we need. Um, he's given that too. Um, this is a church. I don't know if you know this, but like it is really, really rare for a church plant that's a year old to have multiple people who can step in and preach and teach well on the weekends. Um, and God has gifted us with just other people who can do that. And like that's, that's a blessing to our body as a whole. Um, and I think God is starting to grow the spirit of evangelism that we've been praying for in our body. Um, I think uh, evangelism, sharing the gospel, however you want to refer to that, is something that tends to just like start to simmer in our lives. And then I think like there's this moment where that simmer goes from a simmer to a boil. And just as I've been hearing you guys share, both in my city group as well as just small conversations, just seeing how God is starting to work to answer that prayer, that we would have multiple opportunities to share the truth of the gospel, this truth of this Jesus who came, lived this perfect life, died to take our sin and rose to give us new life. That this growing passion and understanding for the gospel is starting to simmer more and more. And so as we close out this section, and in some ways, it's hard that like we have to close this one um, on the most like technical and theological week. In some ways, like I think this is what we had to do because we need to understand these things. Uh, but, but these weeks kind of pain me because they feel really in the weeds and, and a little bit too studious uh, for me. And I want to make more jokes and have more fun. Um, but like, I, I think it's good to just reflect um, even as we close this on how God has richly provided for us, um, that he's given us exactly what we need as a body, that, that even in as we're understanding these things, and I, even as I was preparing this, just to think like, man, I just have zero fear over where we're at, where we're at like unity-wise. Like that it's been a rich season of not being worried like, oh man, somebody's going to punch me in the parking lot after, like, I, pastors all the time, like, joke, like, oh, see my emails on Monday, that's so stupid, nobody emails you, um, like, no one emails at all, like, right, but, like, I never feel that way, like, we've had uh, just such a warm and loving season where we communicate clearly as a family, and so I'm thankful for that, and so that's how I want to close this, I want to just pray, and let's just thank God for who he is, for what he's done, and then for specifically how he's working uh, towards the mission that he's put us on here at River City, let's pray. God, thank you for the men and women at this church and the uh, beautiful way that you have gifted us with these people. God, thank you for these folks who who care for each other so well um, in times of need. Thanks for the the servant hearts that you're arising. Thanks for the spirit of generosity which you are growing. Thanks for these multitude of talents in our body. God, thank you. Thank you for this uh, growing fire, the, the simmer of evangelistic excitement around sharing the truth of the gospel uh, with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, uh, these people that you've placed us near. 
Uh, God, I pray that you would continue uh, to just open our eyes to the way that you've blessed this body, that we wouldn't get um, too in the weeds about the details of some of these things, so much so uh, that we don't see through the mire that we're in to the beauty of what you've built in your local church. God, we are uh, a body that is messed up in so many ways. Um, There's so many uh, pieces and parts of our lives that aren't yet perfect. There are so many ways where we have opportunity to offend and hurt each other. And yet, God, because of Jesus and Jesus alone, you have knit us together to be a family of faith running after you that we might believe every day who you've called us to be and who you say we are and be able to communicate that, Lord, to the world around us. Um, In your name we pray. Amen.